my first master's was in CBT and I was very in love with that, but I realized it's quite limited. And I really wanted to be able firstly to understand myself, to heal myself, to be able to transform. Um, so I started with, with, with me and then looked into my work. And despite of so many years of education, so many years of studies and clinical practice, despite all of this, you know, all of the fact, despite the fact that I integrated in a way everything that I've learned, everything that I've studied in my clinical practice, in my, in my work, um, all these school, schools of thoughts, all of these techniques that we have available in, in, in therapy these days, I was still stuck in a way. I didn't, I didn't manage to unstuck myself. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Today we're meeting with Nicoletta Porijanu. I was introduced to Nicoletta via a friend and invited onto her podcast, Open to Happiness, to talk about working with people who've offended. But Nicoletta has also done so many other things. She's an applied psychologist, a psychotherapist and an educator and seeks to help people navigate painful transitions. She also has her own inspirational story about navigating painful experiences and not getting stuck in the pain. So we've been really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome, Nicoletta. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. It's fantastic to be here with you, Naomi and David. Hello, Nicoletta. It's a real pleasure to meet with you today. Could you begin by telling us something about your career pathway? Because I, I understand you started off as a, a journalist and of course you switched careers so what was it that led you to make this kind of change? Sure well I have started training as a psychologist um, prior to becoming a journalist in fact so this media job has not really influenced my career path prior to that I was um, a clerk in in our town hall for for a number of years so there's been five years in in doing this kind of administrative jobs and then five years in journalism in the written media which I loved but uh, I was already studying psychology that was my decision from I don't know since I was 10 I would imagine Um, I wanted to to be able to support others in the same way my grandmother was doing it. So what triggered this uh, career path was actually the dynamic within my own family. For the first seven years of life, myself and my brother, we were brought up by our grandparents at the countryside. It was in the early 70s when usually parents in, in a communist Romania would work seven days a week. So that was the culture, really. Children would go with the grandparents who are now either at pension or they have a little farm and they can manage their you know their days easily so uh, it was a wonderful environment for me it was very caring very altruistic my mother was my grandmother was uh, uh, quite mystical my grandfather was a wise man Um, everyone would come around We, we would have people around all the time so they have been my first mentors and I felt quite safe and happy around them And then when I reached the school age, our parents took us to the city. And that was a massive change for us because everything was, you know, life was happening in a small cubicle, like an apartment in a block of flats. We didn't have the fields, we didn't have the animals. 
you know. Then there was domestic abuse. It was a different dynamic in the family. Then my sister was born and myself and my brother, more myself than my brother, became a little bit of caregivers. Um, so at eight, I remember I had my first moment of awareness in a way, if you want to call it that way. I realized that my parents are different to my neighbors. So I became curious. I wanted to learn why are my parents this way? Why, why are people different? Why is my father drinking and the next door neighbor doesn't? Um, so this curiosity really shaped everything that, that happened later on. That's a, a very dramatic portrayal of your earlier life, uh, Nicolas. I mean, it sounds like a scene, particularly with your grandmother, seen from a Tarkovsky uh, movie uh, there. It's uh, very dramatic, very beautiful. And, and then you've described this contrast when you move to the city, which again is a very dramatic kind of, of uh, shift. So can you say a bit more about that? Because that was clearly a very influential change in your life, moving from the country to the city. Yes, it was, and it still is, and, I, and it's interesting, but over the years, I, I wanted to make the journey back <laughs> from the city into the peacefulness of, you know, of the open fields and, and quietness that you find um, uh, in an open space, in a, in a different kind of environment. So when you use the word traumatic, uh, initially, it felt a little bit um, uncomfortable, which is interesting for me to discover that while chatting with you, you know, as a psychologist, um, because it brings a label, you see, it brings, um, it brings something to it, but it's true, it was a trauma. I mean, in my learning, now working, obviously, in London with, with such a diverse, you know, group of people, I, I would say that trauma is part of our lives. I can't obviously generalize. I can't say all people have been traumatized because I haven't met 8 billion people. <laughs> I haven't met everyone. But, but the people I meet, the people that permit themselves to be in touch with their own, you know, their own personal history, maybe with their own life script, what's been assigned to them in their ancestry, I think they will find a, a sort of trauma. Either a bit of abuse, a bit of neglect, maybe some adverse childhood experiences, this kind of displacement moving from the countryside to the city for a child can be quite um, shaking. So at the time I wasn't developed enough to realize the impact, but now reflecting as an adult and working on myself, on my, on my obviously on my past, I can, um, I can acknowledge that it's been, it's been a little bit difficult. Um, there's been loads of you know, questions in me as a child. Um, but I, I, I don't know how, maybe it was the first seven years of life when I, when I had these wonderful grandparents that were mature, that were wise, you know, they were settled. I didn't see, you know, that kind of emotional instability around me. Maybe they cemented in a way my personality or my being. Um, I developed resilience it didn't feel painful. I didn't cry much. I didn't, you know, you bury your emotions anyway when you're a child. You disconnect from them because you can't handle them. Um, and at the same time, what I find very important, and it's been then 
showing up in all my work, everything I'm doing these days, we need to accept that our lives is not completely beautiful or completely terrible. We, we have a mix of experiences and events and circumstances and, and, and joys very often women with, with, with despair and sadness. And that's the nature of life. So what we need to really do is to accept that some parts of our previous experience have been difficult, have been painful, have been traumatizing, but others have been amazing because maybe today we have a little bit of conflict. My father came back home drunk, you know, initiated a conflict, there was beatings or whatever was going on in there, shouting and so on. But then for a good number of days, we had a quiet family environment with two parents and three children that we, you know, would enjoy life. So I had both of them. I can't just ignore, you know, the, the, the good, good memories that we have just for feeling trapped in, in the negative ones. So, yes, it's about understanding and acceptance. And now I can, I can integrate that past into my life. I allow it to be. And I feel in a way it's helped me open my eyes. It, it helped me not necessarily reach a level of enlightenment, but, but do see the light because I opened my eyes and I could look and see what I couldn't maybe previously or as I'm I'm learning every day some people or what maybe other people can't see because they don't permit themselves to embrace everything look at life in its wholeness and let it be make the best of what happened take the learnings and move forward in life you know with all of these teachings um, so for me I, I, I moved out of the, you know, victim, victimhood mentality in a way or feeling sorry for myself. And I now look with compassion into my past, you know, at my family members, our ancestry and all of the other people because we share, we share this world together. <laughs> yes, that's, that's beautifully put, uh, Nicoletta. But uh, I must apologise if I unsettled you by using the word traumatic, because I'd meant to work, use the word dramatic. Um, but perhaps your response does, in fact, highlight something about the closeness of those two words anyway, not just in the way that they sound, but in their kind of meaning and impact as, as, as well. So you... you mentioned that you were a journalist what kind of journalist were you what was your I was a reporter I was doing investigation and usually social um, busy writings yeah for a local for our local weekly newspaper in our city right so do you think that kind of investigative journalism uh, helped you in your in the development of your career as a psychologist as a, a therapist I feel um, I had the skills before, uh, in a way, and and of course these skills have been nurtured throughout these years, five years of journalism. Uh, it was it was one of the best times of my life. I would have loved to remain a, a journalist, despite the fact that I was studying psychology. They, they overlap a little bit. There's a lot of uh, one in the other, 
Um, but uh, it wasn't aligned to my value. Um, so I realized I don't really belong into that world. Uh, I would have had to compromise a lot on, on myself, on who I was, and uh, the benefits and the gains of what I was about to you know, get. They were not sufficient. They were not uh, enough to put up with the losses, especially on a, you know, on a moral and ethical level. Say a bit more about that, Nicoletta. What, what, what do you mean in terms of... I mean, media is a wonderful world. Um, you have power, you know. You just, you just write an article and you just bring truth to the, to the masses. Uh, I was very much invested in searching for truth. That was, that was the purpose. When I, I was given this job, I was selected out of 50 people. And that's, again, it's another step in my journey because I love grammar. I love to write. I love to read. I spend all my years in the, in the adolescence, in the early years of life. So from 10 to 16, when I met with my first boyfriend that became my late husband now, I, I refugiated myself. I, I, I found a refuge in, in reading, you know, going to the libraries, getting books and searching, finding. So it all came together. It was beautiful to, to, to be in that world. You, you know, you have your own schedule, you know, you don't have to be anywhere at a particular time. It's all about creativity, connecting with your resources, being connected with people. You're always talking to people. You're always, you know, there for them as, as well at the same time, trying to, 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 to maybe give something um, from yourself. But um, there's a lot of politics in the media. And in, in order to survive, a newspaper is obviously obliged to somehow reach a partnership with, with the politics, with the local authorities, with the government, with all these structures that are part of our world, our lives. And um, sometimes, you know, you put a lot of effort into writing uh, an, a very important piece of article that you think might be helpful for, for, for the communities to, to hear a bit more about. And it doesn't get published. <laughs> On the last minute, something is happening and it's been pulled off. Or um, you are maybe required to do something to write about someone that you don't really, um, you don't really um, want to write about. You don't feel like it has something important to say, you know, um, or um, you simply don't want to promote that kind of doctrine or that kind of um, philosophy of life. So it's it's very interesting how everything uh, pans out in the end, because you feel like you are, a, you are in a nice place, but it's a dead, dead end for you. It doesn't go anywhere. So you need to take the journey back and, you know, pick up a new, a new road ahead of you. Thank you. You have a lovely way with words, Nicoletta. Very much indeed for that. That's a, that's a lovely portrait of uh, the, 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 thrills and the problems of being a journalist I, and I think we see that those kind of conflicts uh, throughout the world of course um, but moving on to your work as a 
therapist, what kind of work have you focused on as a therapist? Mm -hmm. I started as a clinical psychologist uh, back in the early 2000s. My first job was in palliative care. So I worked with people that were dying. Um, It was, again, in my view now, uh, sent a message, uh, I don't know, uh, an angel sent to me. When I was doing my dissertation, my research uh, for my clinical uh, psychology degree, um, I met a young psychiatrist who who was quite impressed with with the way I was really approaching my research. Because I spent a lot of time in hospital in the psychiatric units and I did it properly. So he was really impressed and he asked me if I'm interested in getting a job as a psychologist when I when I graduate. He knew someone in this hospital that um, needed uh, some maternity cover for a year. So this is how I started. So I accepted it. I, I, I took the interview. It wasn't what I planned to do, uh, but it was um, it was a wonderful experience. I was too young, really, in my 30s to deal with the dying. There were so many existential questions. People were full of regrets um, towards the end of their lives. There was little awareness. They had so many uh, conflicts, so many ruptured relationships, things that they haven't managed to sort out throughout their lives. And there was a lot of pain there. And I was the one sitting with them towards their last, you know, last breath, last breaths to, uh, to maybe provide a little bit of companion uh, and a platform of maybe consciousness for them to be able to come in touch with themselves and maybe find a way of living this world um, more at peace or, I don't know, doing the work that they want to do. And, and all of this experience allowed me to realize that doing tests and evaluations um, in psychology is fantastic. You learn a lot about, you know, as people... Um, creating a treatment plan or having a diagnosis in mind is helpful but it does not everything with some categories of people this is irrelevant it becomes you know nonsense to be honest so I I felt in a way triggered to start training as a psychotherapist and I've done a a couple of uh, postgrad courses back home then I moved to London and I continued studying this time it was all around um, culture, diversity, minorities, because obviously I was exposed to a different, very diverse world. I worked with 49 nationalities and um, I continued training, counseling, psychology, psychotherapy and so on, different, different other training. And I felt in a way that searching for this miracle modality or technique, you know, that will help everyone um, was um, was not, you know, where I should focus my attention <laughs> because I couldn't find it. There was no way we could we could develop a tool to release the pain and help everyone, help every kind of life struggle. My first master's was in CBT, and I was very in love with that, but I realized it's quite limited. And I really wanted to be able, firstly, to understand myself, to heal myself, to be able to transform. Um, so I started with, with, with me and then looked into my work. And despite of so many years of education, so many years of studies and clinical practice, despite all of this, you know, all of the fact, despite the fact that I integrated in a way everything that I've learned, everything that I've studied, 
in my clinical practice, in my in my work, um, all these school schools of thoughts, all of these techniques that we have available in in, in therapy in these days, I was still stuck in a way. I didn't I didn't manage to unstuck myself, mm-hmm. um, and then I realized that I was stuck in my own program mind, and I tried wrongly to to apply therapy onto the mind and and help people change in their minds. And then I realized that going to the semantics, going to the word, the root word of psychotherapy, which both in Latin and Greek means the healing of the soul, I realized that I'm searching in the wrong place. And then I looked beyond, you know, psychology. I looked into transpersonal psychology. And this is when I, 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 I could really see for the first time in my life, it was an amazing experience when I acknowledged this third dimension of mine, which was always there. It was my spiritual being, which was awakened by my grandmother, by my, my mystical grandmother. I had it in me. It was there. I was aware of it, but because of the studies and the science of psychology, I, I disregarded it. And this is when I really started to practice what I wanted to practice. Um, and then in my, um, you know, over time in my practice, I, um, I managed to, to, to integrate, um, the tools that I found to be very helpful. I managed to acknowledge that we need to understand a little bit of anthropology if we are to, to understand our roots and our ancestry. There's no way. You, you, you can know yourself if you don't understand the, you know, the human history because we, we come from them so, and they live in us. And then naturally, obviously, there's been, there's been different other discoveries on the way. Um, I looked into the Eastern spirituality traditions a lot. I developed my own practice, you know, just being in touch with myself. I call it meditation, but we can call it anything. Um, and that's been very helpful. Uh, to be able to guide my clients um, into themselves, um, having this this kind of crutch, having me as a companion, just guiding them, made it easier for them. And then I I, I started to integrate a little bit logo, logotherapy, which comes from Viktor Frankl and his Man's Search for Meaning, uh, which is an amazing book. I, w- I always recommend it to my clients when they start because if you don't have meaning and purpose in your life, it doesn't even matter what you have. It doesn't matter how lucky you've been if you maybe escape trauma and pain. Um, if you don't understand why you're here and what you're making, what's your purpose, where you're going, there's no clarity, there's no direction. And this is where some people that haven't had so much hardship in their first years of life, this is where they struggle. And they have a decent life, but yet they feel empty. They feel that something is missing. And that's the clarity and direction that they need. And this is when meaning and purpose comes into place. So in my work now, I look beyond psychology and psychotherapy. And I integrate different other disciplines, which I found to be quite important uh, and quite necessary in our self-discovery, in our healing and in our transformation. Thank you. That's that's really interesting. Um, and, but I'm struggling a bit because what you're describing, it seems to me, is something that's ineffable, or at least I hope it's ineffable. Um, because I was thinking about your 
your reference to anthropology and understanding where we come from as, as uh, human beings. And I was, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that, because of course, there's knowing and understanding. And for example, I'm going off on a slight spur here. There's uh, an American constitution, which is written down on a piece of paper, not much bigger than that probably. Um, but you know, there are 300 million people who have a different understanding of what that means for them and what that means for other people. Um, so through your reading of anthropology, what do you then take from that into the room with your clients or your patients? Do you know what, do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, I think irrespective of our readings, which in itself is quite a limited experience because in, in the span of an 80 year life, I would say we can only read a few books. Even if you read one, I, I've done the calculation recently and I, I've done a video, it was, it was inspired by my clients. Even if you read a book a week, you would go through maybe 4,000 books throughout your lifespan. And how do you choose? What do you choose? What are these books about? And then there's been 130 million books written and that's just a, a, a fragment of the knowledge and, and, and the, you know, the, um, yeah, the knowledge of the universe. We don't know where it's coming from. Maybe it's coming from there. So whether we're reading or not, um, whether we, we, we read anthropology books or we permit ourselves to, to just open the eyes and understand the basics, we don't need to know a lot. This is not about learning uh, and adding data onto our memory. It's not about sounding uh, knowledgeable or articulate. It's not about being able to tell others what you read and, and what you know. This is about a very basic understanding, which I think is a knowing inside of every single one of us, that we are not the first ones living on this earth. There's been others before. And if we listen to the science, we now apparently know that there's been two and a half million years of human history. And now whether we started based on Darwin's theory from a little bacteria somewhere in the ocean, yeah, amoeba or whatever, or you, you take the religious route, you don't like the science and you keep the religious route and you look, you look through any religion you might want to, to, to refer to, yeah, whether Christianity or, or I don't know, it doesn't even matter. They all go back to the same learnings to the same teachings. There's been something before and you're, you're, now, you're now the child of that, yeah. So this, this human history, the two and a half million years of human history have left marks on us. People, barbaric people, we've learned about them through our you know, history uh, lessons. They have conquered the world, different territories. They have moved, they have been foragers, they have been you know, settlers at some point 13,000 years ago. And then they just developed the world that we know today. We believe these stories, that's what we know. There's nothing else. Unless we use our imagination, we create our own fantasies. It's all fiction anyway. That's not the reality. The reality is what we have in front of our eyes at this very moment, and that's it. And it's gone already to allow for another reality to unfold. So this is us. These are our ancestors. 
they have in they have had in them you know the beauty and the kindness that has allowed the world to continue but they have also had and we still have ourselves the evil the hatred the envy you know everything that is on a negative nature how i look at life and human experience i look not as differentiated between good people and bad people sane people and insane people all of us can go on this continuum of experience at any point in life anywhere we want anywhere it's a continuum of experience it's nothing else we are not anything the personality is just a lie that we've been told it's just whatever's been programmed into our mind we can strip ourselves from from parts that we don't feel aligned with and, and we can just keep the ones that represent us that make us feel good and, and maybe embrace some more that we feel should be part of our making. So the, the anthropology, if we look at anthropology and we understand where we're coming from, then we, we can maybe contemplate the idea of, of accepting at some point that whatever hurt and joy these people have encountered, it's still part of us. It's traveled through the evolutionary memory. So from, one species, from our species, as it, it, it developed in time, it's traveled through our karmic memory, which is the ways people have acted and reacted to life. And it's definitely traveled through our genes. We know now that through epigenetics, which is the new science of biology, there's no doubt about it. So how we look at anthropology and why it makes sense to us, it's about understanding your roots. And when you, when you get to understand that and you accept that if the epigenetics is truth, in our genes, 11 generations back, we have everything that they have experienced. 11 generations, their experiences traveled in time and we have them in us, including their genetic mutations and everything else. Then it's very clear that we are not just a product of ourselves. Yeah, our grandparents and grand-grandparents and our parents live in us. 50% from the mother, 50% from the father, with their inner experience. So in understanding ourselves, it's not just I'm seeing myself through my, my labels, my name, my race, my age, my nationality, whatever. Yeah, I'm seeing myself through the true nature of my existence, who I really am, aim, and, and where I'm coming from. And how did I get here through this union from my mother and father? And then... And why am I here? What's the purpose? And how, when I discover all of this, how am I gonna use this to, to help me move forward into my future? So I can live my life, not you know, on automatic pilot as it comes accidentally based on the memory and the database, but, by, but through this presence and, and awareness that I have now acquired, that is informing every single step on my life. So I'm not looking at anthropology in terms of maybe finding the truth, um, what happened, uh, I don't know, 100,000 years ago, who lived in that kind of area and how were they? And, but it's more about the, you know, the close uh, um, relationship we have with our ancestors, with our immediate ancestors, and with what the human being has in it, which is part of me and you. And we can't deny it. I mean, we, we can disown it. 
because we don't like our unpleasant facets. We, we, we repress them, we deny them. We use all sorts of defense mechanisms. To, we sometimes rationalize them or intellectualize them. We do all sorts of things to, 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 to justify what's not pleasant in us, you know. But the, the truth is, every single one of us can commit a crime if you take them into the, the wrong environment where they have to either defend themselves or defend someone else. Every single one of us, as moral as you know, kind and, and generous we might be, we have that potential in us. Potential is not just positive, it's negative. It goes on this continuum of experience from the most beautiful human experience and emotion to the most evil one. So that's why I think anthropology is important and it has to be a very simple exploration of where we're coming from, nothing else. We don't dispute the science and the different theories that we have around. It's all about taking some, some, some meaning from, from what the past meant to us, to me as an individual, based on my own ancestry and what my parents and grandparents have lived because the trauma travels through generations. Their trauma is in me now. I, I am discovering it and I'm healing it every single day. Thank you. Um, so we're all struggling, really, to understand our own meaning uh, for these particular experiences that you're describing, which go back eons. What, and what's their impact upon us? I mean, you've described it much more beautifully than me. But, uh, but can we move on? Because um, I'm, I'm thinking there's lots more that we need to and want to talk with you about so you started the charity the significant you so what led you to to do that and tell us a bit about the charity itself yes well in my mid-40s I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer um, and a genetic mutation the BRCA1 genetic mutation triple negative uh, can breast cancer is quite a rare disease I wasn't even aware of it uh, before that myself. It's the disease that usually uh, young women get. And it's most of the time, if not all the time, associated with this genetic mutation, BRCA1. Most of the listeners probably and the watchers would be familiar with this because Angelina Jolie came uh, public uh, some years back, eight, 10 years ago, uh, disclosing that her mother died of uh, uh, ovarian cancer and um, based on, uh, caused by a genetic mutation. And she was afraid that she might inherit that gene. She actually inherited the gene. She um, came out positive. And she decided to go through some very drastic changes um, to remove that tissue in her body that might be at risk of developing that illness. Um, well, I'm the same case. My, my mother died quite young of, of ovarian cancer, but we didn't know about the genetic mutation at the time. And I developed this uh, breast cancer, rare breast cancer, quite young, uh, in my early in my mid forties, um, when most of the uh, breast cancer uh, sufferers get diagnosed quite late in life, after 60s, 70s, and that's the positive cancer we call it. It's complex. I'm not going to get into details. So I had this illness, and it came as a shock because I lived quite a healthy life. It was a horrible experience, I must say it. But at the same time, it was a giving experience because it allowed me to, to dive into epigenetics, to study this, because I knew for a fact from science that only 50% of women with this genetic mutation would actually develop breast cancer or ovarian cancer. 
And I, I was very keen to find out why was I one of the 50% that developed it. So I studied a lot of epigenetics and I tried to understand why was I one of them. So basically the epigenetics taught me that it's not the genes that actually creates the illness. It's, it's how the genes are being influenced by the outer environment, because we can turn on and off our genes, basically, with our inner environment, which is how we take care of our body, mind, and soul, and the outer environment, which is about other people, structures of the world, and the stress that we all face. So for me, I was through a lot of studies. I, I had a, a full-time job in the, in the mental health corporate world. I had two private practices in different locations, one at home, one in an office in central London. I was volunteering for a mental health charity. So yeah, I was doing all of these things at the same time. And it was really, really tiring. So I exposed myself to a lot of stress. I feel that in a way that stress was the, the what, what ignited for that gene of mine to actually mutate, yeah? And, and, and then develop these uh, uh, cancer cells and not because of the mutation itself, not, not realize that the cancer is going. Anyway, it's been difficult. It's been, you know, six months of chemotherapy treatment, a couple of major surgeries, years of recovery. But throughout these years, after I realized that I'm actually surviving, because the, for, for, for this particular cancer, the, the survival rate was quite low. Most of the women that were diagnosed uh, quite late um, with stage three or four, which was not my case, they died within the, the following 12 to 18 months. So when I realized that I survived, <laughs> when I was approaching two years, something shifted in me and I wanted to give something to the humanity. I said, I'm, I'm going to have to do more because I became more aware of the true nature of our human existence. I wasn't that trapped into my mind. You know, That was a, a pure awakening for me. What happened? There was a night in the hospital in the NE when I thought I'm dying. I had a chest infection. I didn't know I had it. And I, 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 you know, it was during the chemotherapy. I almost died. And that was when I realized that I have to surrender to, to this. I have to accept it. I'm bold. I'm cold. I have this illness. My body is all over the place. I might be one of those people that would die. So I have to accept it and, and, and make the best of what I have left. Yeah, remain sound, you know talk to my son, leave the affairs in order, and so on. So, you know, when I looked around, I realized that I'm not the only one. There's so much suffering, there's so much pain, there's so many people that are getting diagnosed every day with all sorts of ailments. You know, there's so many other people that, that suffer relationship issues, you know, divorce, you know, betrayal, uh, loss of a job, loss of an income, struggle to, to, to carry on in life. So there was so much pain, which I was aware of, but this time I felt it deeply. And I realized that there is little support for people and still people look outside for support. There was very little, you know, kind of awareness around what kind of tools we have, you know. So in a way, I felt a calling to do something different, you know, um, to help people that suffer in their mental health beyond my practice, you know, beyond everything that I knew and I could do as a clinician myself. You, know, you can only see a few patients. You're not going to change the world. You're going to change one life at a time if you can, uh, if people are ready for it and if people can do it. So in a way, I've realized that there are so many mental health charities, but they kind of all do the same thing, you know, and I wanted to... I wanted to allow people that live in this modern world, in these modern Western societies, to, 
to really start taking responsibility themselves, to really learn to own their lives. Because at the moment when you feel unwell, you're going to your GP, you're expecting to get some counseling sessions. You know, it's all about looking for the government to help us, looking for the systems of the world to help us through the medical, to the national health medical services. And so we, when we look outside, we, we miss the, the, the power that we have ourselves. In my learnings, it's been, it's been a privilege for me to find out that this, this is true for me, that the answers that we're searching for are not out there, it, they are inside of us, but we need to look inside to find them. So I, I had this inner guidance that I need to do something different. So I established this mental health charity, you know, uh, the significant you to remind people that they are significant and they have it all. They have, they need to start from themselves to empower them to regain this kind of control over their lives, you know, to remind them that in a way they have the responsibility, not in terms of owning the responsibility to others, but the ability to respond themselves to life. That's responsibility. They, ha they have that ability to respond to the circumstances of what's going on around. So I realized that I want you to, 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 to do this mental health charity where people, it's a holistic mental health charity. People understand that the first line of support is themselves. You need to learn to help yourself first. Then you look at your community, maybe your family, your friends, people in the local community that might be able to offer you a bit of support. And then the third layer will be, you know, the government through its, its, its systems, because the further you go in, you know, waiting for help, the more you have to wait. The, the closest to yourself is you. <laughs> so you start with yourself. What can I do? It's about empowerment, you know, and, and self-discovery and healing and transformation using your own self, not necessarily waiting for others to bring you the answers. Because even in therapy and counseling, we are just guides. We can't do anything in people. We don't bring anything in people. We can talk, we can inspire them, we can say anything. If they are not open to, to hear that, if they are not ready for that kind of message, nothing will change. And this is why sometimes therapy is not as successful. Um, so that's what ignited this, this idea. And yeah. So, so what's it actually do? Because I mean, obviously what you're saying sounds you know, spot on, but it also resonates in this country with uh, a notorious politician, Norman Tebbit, who during the well, not the last depression, but a previous depression, told people to get on their bikes and go and find a job. But you're presumably saying more than that uh, with, with your, your charity. You're not just saying you've just got to look after yourselves, are you? What's, what does a charity actually do? We provide information. We provide, um, we are now working to launch uh, three different mental health campaigns, and they all start from um, acknowledging that you have the power because choice is our power really there's no other power that we have everything else is an illusion the only power we have in life in my humble view is choice is the power of choice you have the choice in, in this very second to act or react to life it's it, it, it's up absolutely up to you what you make of this gift that you have you can sit in in despair in, in unpleasantness, in, in depression, or whatever we want to call it, in sadness, because you don't look the way you want, you don't 
think you have the mental abilities that you that others have. Uh, you're disconnected from your emotions, and your emotions are usually quite uh, unpleasant. Or other people don't treat you the way you want. The world is not playing out the way you want. So there's always reasons. We always find, find reasons to feel miserable. Yeah, but at the same time, we can always find reasons to be joyful. That requires openness. That requires openness to this possibility of being a bit more than it is right now. I can make a choice if I sit with this sadness that my father is about to die. I'm giving you an example of this happening right now. I sit with this sadness, but I don't have to let it overwhelm me and take all the space and all the time of my life. I'm being mindful that I need this time of self-care. I'm taking an hour and I'm going, I'm talking to my siblings. We all live in different countries. So we get on, on the phone, on a video call, and we talk and we share. Then I have my therapist. Then I have my family, you know, to support me. And we talk about this. We explore it. We, we allow it to be part of our lives. We surrender to it. We try to understand why it's happening. We try to accept it. And then we surrender to it. And then we move on to life. We, we can accept that life is more than one thing. And two very conflicting feelings can coexist at the same time. It's up to us to choose to give attention the next second to the beauty of the nature surrounding us, you know, to the joy of having a child or having a partner or having a friend or having a workmate or, you know, people that we work with or people we interact with or maybe smiling to someone, a cashier in a supermarket or just saying thank you from our heart. Not just that, thank you. Okay, I'm all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we are completely in our minds, in our memory, we function from what's in the database, we are not present to the beauty of this moment. It's about connection. It's about kindness. It's about awareness. Because everything can be summed up in one word. That's love. Love is happiness. Love is joy. Love is acceptance. Love is tolerance. Love is, you know, everything that is of a positive nature. They all originate from that. And love is life. So basically, it's a choice that we're making to embrace the aliveness and the vitality, or to let any little issue or a significant hardship and adversity that we have in life, it can be anything, to actually deter our life, to, to make it you know, feel unpleasant, sad, and so on. It's about managing, being open to what's unfolding and allowing it to be and embracing it and allowing the ambivalence and the unknown to just happen because this is not in our control. The only thing we can control is this choice, what we do with ourselves. In okay. here, in our bodies, how we feed our bodies, minds, and souls. Thank you. Naomi, I yes, feel I've, I've been hogging Nicoletta. Come in. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking that brings us very nicely, actually, to the subject of, of your podcast, Nicoletta. Um, and most podcasts fold after six episodes, we keep hearing. But uh, but when I last looked, you were on to your 73rd episode. Maybe it's even as many as 75 by now. Yeah. What, so you, your podcast is called Open to Happiness, and, and you have really nice conversations on there. But I wondered what important information have you learned from the guests that you've had on your podcast? Mm -hmm. Have you well, any insights that could help us all welcome more happiness into our yes. lives? I started this podcast right after my cancer uh, uh, illness uh, because I realized I, I was at the time completely, fully social media adverse. I was nowhere. I didn't 
engage with anyone in the virtual world. I, I wasn't a fan of that. And I realized that I'm quite isolated, especially through this illness, you know, working as much. So I was isolated and our profession is anyway isolating and it's quite a lonely profession, isn't it? It's just us, the client and the room and that's it. So I had this guidance, it came into me that maybe I should share all of these learnings that I'm having, how I integrate all of these other disciplines into my therapy work, how important it is to develop this mindful, uh, you know, ritual on a daily basis. You make sure you check out with yourself. You know, a few times a day, I have memo on my phone to remind me, even now, after so many years of practice, it's important. Life takes you like this. You can easily get yourself lost in everything. So I realized that if we are trapped in our minds, there's no way we can tap into joy and happiness because our minds, is of, they are of a negative nature. We know by now that 95% of our thoughts are repetitive and 80% of them are of a negative, very self-diminishing, quite, you know, self-sabotaging. And this is the main cause of human suffering, in my humble view. Trap, the stuckness in this mind, you know, living based on that memory. So I realized that I can actually help people out beyond my, my practice. And I didn't know how to approach the masses because the idea of coming on camera or speaking on, in the microphone was very weird to me. I felt very uncomfortable. So it, it became like a personal challenge. I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I'll see how it goes. And it, it, was, it was difficult, but I showed up every week and I said, I'm going to use it. And then I started to love it because the more I, I, I stumbled and I realized, I don't know what I'm talking about and I can't organize my thought process. I, I'm not you know, present all the time. I realized this is my platform for self-development. This is my platform for learning. This is helping me you know, maybe organize my ideas because I'm writing a book. And I said, this is another gift to the humanity. I don't monetize it. You know, I just give it to the, the world for those that are ready to uh, embrace it. So I want to help people to get to know a little bit more about themselves, open their eyes and see what they haven't been able to see before and live with, as I mentioned before, with the ambivalence of life, with the unknown. And at the same time, remain open to happiness because despite of any hardship you, we might have, like losing someone significant in our lives, there's still someone else le left there for us. I lost my husband. I still have my son. So it, plus the other members of the family. So there's always, there's always a reason to be happy, to be joyful. One doesn't necessarily annul the other, cancel the other, erase the other. So that's, that's, that's the most important um, reason I, I keep doing this. And now I'm listening to all sorts of stories. I talk to people from all over the world. They get in touch with me. Some of them I, pick, I choose myself because I find them interesting. I think the most important learning is that our life experience is very similar, more similar than different. Irrespective of who we are, how we look, where we live, you know, what kind of language we use to, to communicate with the world, um, it's absolutely irrelevant. Every single one of us taken to another place and brought up in that environment would become like those. So it's all conditioning. And I think that the, the most important learning is that presence is the key to a good life. Presence, awareness is, good, is the key to good mental health, to success, to happiness, to anything that we might chase in life. Mm -hmm. So despite of... of everything that's going on or at the same time with everything that's going on in our life, um, we need to learn to 
spare some time for self, um, self-care, self-love, self-compassion, self-understanding. And this comes through awareness and mindfulness. So it's important to practice any kind of form of meditation. I call this the connection with the self. We can call it anything. It's about escaping the tunnel mind. So that's my greatest learning. This is what I'm preaching. This is what I'm doing with the podcast, with the charity, in my therapy work. And this is what I think is going to be the, the main message uh, in my book, in the course, the digital course that I'm planning to do now. And this is what's driving me. It's a force that is pulling me. I'm, I'm not great. I'm not smart. I'm nothing. I'm just someone connected with that divine or whatever presence there. And I let that guide me. And I know I'm going somewhere. And I know I'm going to help people on the way because I see it every day. And at the same time, this is bringing me you know, immense joy. And this is my meaning and this is my purpose in life. So I'm, I'm well now. I think I'm grateful for everything that's been happening in my life, good and bad. I embrace them all. And, and, and yeah, I go with this appreciation for life every single day in my life. And it's really nice to hear how you've woven those, everything comes together um, around a, kind of like a central purpose there, but with um, you know, lots of different activities, it, it seems as if you, you're weaving them all together. And if, if you could share anything that would help our listeners strengthen their ability to navigate transitions, what, what would this one thing be? First of all, always remember that you're just a spark in this universe, just like me and you, all of the others, that we are connected uh, with each other, that we have been programmed to think and behave a certain way. And that's just conditioning. That's just a little software on our physical brain. This is what I call the tunnel mind. It's underground, it's in the tunnels because it's not our choice. It's been given to us by others. And if they have been themselves in the darkness, we have inherited that darkness. But there is light out there. We have the choice and that's our power. That's our light. And this is what we need to do. We need to um, um, use this choice that we have, this power that we have to escape this tunnel, you know, this prison that we have in now. This is the real prison, not, not the prison that we see in the, in the outside world. This, this, the mental prison, this is what we need to escape. So I managed to do it. I managed to free myself. I embrace freedom. I embrace liberation. It is very possible. I'm guiding other people through the same path to do it themselves, within themselves. That's one of my greatest learnings. I share it with you all. You liberate yourself too, because that's, I think, that's the point of your life. That's the purpose of your life. Awaken, live from a place of conscious awareness. And as much as you do, Capture this second that is coming because that's life. Everything else is past. Everything else that will unfold at some point is future. But life is this present moment. And if we live it fully, if we take a deep breath and we embrace it and we fully, it and we are anchored and grounded into our bodies and we observe, we become the observer of our minds, then that's, that's conscious awareness. And that's the best gift I think we can give to ourselves in life. There's no other gift we can give to ourselves. Great advice there, Nicoletta. Great advice. Thank you. We've come to the end of time, I think. I don't know if you've got any final thoughts, David. No, no. I mean, you're very, very articulate and you've got loads of ideas. So this uh, hour has been a very densely packed hour, I think. Many thanks for that. No, you're very welcome. Thank you. I love, I, I love chatting with you. I love your questions. Thank you for having me.